Good morning. Thank you for standing with us as we read God's Word together. We're on a journey through the book of Philemon, which is uh, fun, right? Some of you didn't even know that existed. It's a little 25-verse, one-chapter book in your New Testament. Uh, We're going to read verses 8 through 11 today. So we read together. Just kind of picking up where we left off last week. Paul says, Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, which was as funny for him to say as it sounds to you, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment, verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. You may be seated. Sometime around the year 60 A.D., Paul finds himself in Rome. Uh, He is not free. He is, we call it the Roman imprisonment. He was more likely under some sort of house arrest. Uh, We know from what we read in the book of Acts and the account of Acts of what was going on then for him uh, that he was uh, living in some kind of private quarters at his own expense, that he was able to receive visitors and meet with people, and yet he was not free. He was under arrest, so he did not have freedom And so he wrote what we call the prison epistles. And and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and watch. And uh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but when you go to our website and you actually pull up the Watch Online page, you can also download sermon notes. All these sermon notes that we pass out every week, you can download a PDF copy of those and follow along. There was a chart where we unpacked last week how all these books kind of work together. Uh, Paul uh, wrote what we commonly call the prison epistles during this time, which was Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So this book, Philemon, was the only one of the four that's written to a person, uh, and it's written to Philemon, who was a leader in the church at Colossae. So if you think about it, he wrote the book of Colossians, and then he wrote this kind of private letter, and he packages them together, and he sends them off back to Colossae, uh, uh, Philemon was a, uh, a wealthy citizen, and actually the church in Colossae would have met in his house, because that's how this letter starts, to the, you and this church meets in your house, right? Uh, Paul is, like I said, able to receive visitors, he's meeting with people, he still has a heart for the kingdom. And so today he's going to really get into the heart of this last letter and really the reason for writing the letter. He's going to begin to unpack what is his theme. And our sermon title for today, you see if you got a notes page on the way in, you see our sermon title is Compelled by the Gospel. What does it mean for us to be compelled by the gospel? And specifically, and again, it may be subtle, although I don't really think it's all that subtle, But even in the verses that we just read, you can hear the theme that Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, he was a runaway slave of Philemon. And we're going to unpack just right now, we're going to unpack, that's troublesome, right? Yes, it is troublesome. And yet, while, after he had run away, he came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. 
And Paul sends him back, which is probably the last thing that he wanted. And yet, the gospel is so often about reconciliation for us. Uh, we're going to unpack this morning, and i got to tell you, I'm pretty excited. Uh, we, the elders have an, just an ongoing text thread, right? Like many of you do, you have several text threads that you're always, uh, you know, interacting with. So for us on Wednesday, I think Wednesday or Thursday, we started having a discussion about this weekend and the service this weekend and where we're still going to have it. And, you, you know, we're trying to predict the weather. Who knows what's going to happen? But we have to make decisions and we have to let people know. And we were also starting to see a lot of churches that had canceled today. And I, I get that, right? But I got to tell you, there was something like deep down inside of me. I really wanted to have church today. And I'll tell you why. This is, it's selfish, but it's selfish, I believe, for you. Because the subject we're about to talk about is absolutely one of the biggest discipleship hacks you'll ever hear. I'm telling you right now, this subject is one of the most pivotal secrets to living as a disciple, effectively living as a disciple. And it took me years, not just of being a believer, but of actually being a pastor. I knew something, something, there was like a missing ingredient, right? Did you ever taste your favorite recipe and they left an ingredient out and you're like, it's, it's close, but it's not. There's something, like there's something key that's not right. And for years I was on this journey of praying and listening to God and this subject that we're going to talk about today is what was missing. And I think for so many of us who want, and, and, and by the way, if we've been missing this, if you've been missing this, if you walk out and go, I've never thought about that before. I've never been made aware of that before. That doesn't mean that you don't have genuine faith. Not at all what we're saying. It also doesn't mean that you're not a good disciple. But here's the thing, so often for us, it's so hard to do the right thing. Can I get a witness? It's so hard to do the right thing. And so often for years I would find myself, I had to make myself, have to make myself do what I know I ought to do. And I'll tell you why that scares me. For me, and it scares me for you. Because if that really is the heart of the Christian life, me making myself do the right thing, then guess what? This whole thing's dependent on my own power, my own discipline. Tom's already with me. All on board, right? Listen, I love you and I'm sure you're a great person, but that's a recipe for disaster. You're going to be faithful as long as you can make yourself be faithful? And yet... I don't want to be unfaithful, so what am I missing? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we do that, very quickly, I want to unpack something. Obviously, as we just said, and as we unpacked in a little bit more detail last week, the storyline here is that Philemon is this wealthy Roman citizen in the city of Colossae, and he had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away, right? And that becomes this, that becomes this uh, scandal. 
And Onesimus stays away, and then he comes under Paul's tutelage, right? He Somehow, we don't know how, but Onesimus winds up under Paul's ministry, and he gives his heart to Christ. And Paul says, you have to go back. And when you go back, I'm sending a letter with you. Here's the problem. That he was a slave. Why doesn't Paul just say, why does he address the issue that Onesimus was a runaway slave without addressing the issue of slavery? Why doesn't he just say slavery is wrong? Because, everybody listening, it is. Slavery has been present, to the best of my knowledge, been present in every human culture that's ever existed. It's not unique to anyone. Some form of it has always existed. And yet, is not in the will of God, nor does it honor God, that one human could think they could own another human. You can't own someone who's made in God's image. So a little bit of backstory here. Just to help you understand, uh, I, put, I put together a slide here, and I think I put this in your notes. Uh, this was not the same slavery that we saw practiced in North America and really around the world in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Some key differences here, which if you're going to understand the context, you need to understand this. First of all, Roman slavery was in no way based on race. It was not racial. Anyone could be a slave. Uh, interestingly enough, too, education was actually encouraged for slaves. If you owned a slave, you wanted them to be educated. You would encourage them to be educated. In fact, it was not uncommon for a slave to be better educated than the person who owned them. Interesting. Many slaves in Roman society had a very important social status. By the way, all of this information comes from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. Um, I'm not just making it up. <laughs> uh, these slaves, many of them had an important social status because they would have reflected the person that, they, that owned them or that they worked for. If the person that I'm working for is important, then I am going to be important because I'm attached to them. And they were really distributed throughout this kind of socioeconomic pyramid. They were at all levels of it. Slaves had rights. They could actually own property. This is the most interesting part. This is the last point here. In Roman society, slavery was very rarely permanent. Almost always, a slave could expect to be set free by the time they were 30, if not before, because they were working off a debt. In fact, the poorest in their society actually were not slaves. It was day laborers, which if you think about some of Jesus' teachings about people who come and work for the day, right? Those were the poorest of the poor because they didn't know if they were going to get to eat every day. They didn't know if they were going to get to work every day. And so some people actually would sell themselves into slavery because they saw it as a form of job security that they could also get out of eventually. Does that make it right? No. But it does help you understand the context that Paul's writing in. And the context that they found themselves in, they didn't come up with this system. This was the system that they existed in. They were ruled by Rome. 
But I will say this, Paul's silence on the subject does not equal his assent, his approval. Let me tell you how strong that is. In my notes, I googled, how do you make the equal sign not equal? It's right here. You need to understand that. This is how important this is. Just because Paul doesn't address it in this particular letter doesn't mean he approves of slavery. Why didn't he address it more? I don't know. But here's what I know. I'm not more wise than Paul. I didn't get any amens. Come on. I'm not more wise than Paul. I'm not more holy than Paul. And neither are you. See, I tricked you. I was trying to build a rhythm there, and you were going to go with me. Here's the point, though. In this particular context, there was a double forgiveness that was needed. Because when Onesimus left, not only did Paul or or, uh, Philemon actually, he was out real dollar cost that uh, Onesimus would have created by working. But Onesimus apparently either stole money from him or cheated him out of money or took something valuable from him. We don't know the whole story, but he, he, he inflicted real financial cost on Philemon. So there's this double forgiveness that's needed. And so that makes it more poignant, and we're not going to unpack this as much today, but I'm telling you it's coming. Next week in the final, this is a four-part series, so this is part two. So in parts three and four, we're really going to dive into this. Listen, Paul doesn't send Onesimus back as a returning slave. He sends him back as a brother. He doesn't say forgive him and put him back back to work. He says he's free, and you should receive him as your brother, because he is that now. So go back with me to verse eight. We're going to unpack this supercharged discipleship principle very quickly. Verse 8, Paul says, very interestingly, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. How many of you have heard sermons throughout your life where somebody was just commanding you to do what was required? Okay, a couple of you. You didn't attend the same church as I attended because I've heard quite a few. Could I tell you something? I've preached quite a few. Over the last 30 years, I've delivered quite a few of you should and you should and you better and you ought to and what's wrong with you. Do you know how easy it is to stand up here and make you feel guilty? You know why? Because you are guilty. (laughs) But it doesn't really help anything, does it? It doesn't minister life to you in any way. It doesn't particularly motivate you. Is it wrong to do that? Not necessarily. Paul, this is what cracks me up about this. Think about it. Think about the context that I just explained to you. Even if you weren't here last week and all you know is what I just said to you, as long as you weren't sleeping through all that, then you're following along. Listen. Paul is in prison and as poor as he can be. And he's writing to a wealthy influential Roman citizen. And yet he says, I'm not bashful. I am bold enough in Christ to lay it right out for you. 
I am bold enough in Christ to, to command you. Listen, I'm not in any way inferior to you. By the way, please hear this. Please hear this, American Christian. One of the hallmarks of Christianity is that we all stand shoulder to shoulder no matter how much money we have or we don't have. I didn't get any amens. Can you say amen with me on that? I'm telling you one of the most insidious things about the wealth of our culture and how it has crept into Christianity. And it's really perverted it in some bad ways. Is that we still believe that wealthy people are more blessed by God or they're holier or God loves them more. Can I tell you some of the holiest people I've ever met in my life live in garbage dumps? Some of the happiest people I've ever met. This is what Paul's saying. There's a boldness here. And it comes from this idea. Hear this. This is in your notes. There's really just two ideas that are going to kind of be joined at the hip today to unpack this discipleship secret, which is not really a secret at all. Here's the first one. Duty is a difficult but sometimes necessary part of discipleship in the kingdom. You're filling in blanks. I see some of you already doing that. Duty is a difficult but sometimes necessary part of discipleship in the kingdom. In other words, sometimes you do have to make yourself do things that you don't feel like doing. Amen? amen. You know how I knew you were going to say amen? Because you're an adult. Not many people roll out of bed Monday morning happy. Man, I can't wait to get to work. And especially tomorrow morning, right? And yet, this is what it means to be an adult. We have a duty. If you've raised kids, you don't always feel... I never understood this until we had kids. And I loved my kids, and my kids are just normal kids. And I was this way when I was a kid. Kids, especially babies, are actually the most self-centered people you've ever met. Right? Amen. Thank you, Mr. Barron. He's with me. Hey, why do they get away with it? Because they're cute and soft and cuddly. But when they wake you up in the middle of the night, you don't want to. I don't want to get up and change a diaper or feed them a bottle. We, duty is a real part of being an adult, and specifically, it's a real part of discipleship. Here's the problem. Duty primarily is driven by fear. If I don't do this, I'm afraid that something bad's going to happen. Or I know that something bad will happen if I don't do this. I need to do this to avoid some consequences. Could I just tell you, please hear me, that's not a good long-term recipe for walking with the Lord. Like, if that's all the fuel you have in your tank, you're not going to go very far. It's going to be about how much discipline you have and how much you can make yourself do things. Listen, Paul knew there was a more effective and engaging way to live the Christian life. Duty can be a good safety net, but we have to have something better. You can make yourself do it at times if you must, but you and I need to quickly grow beyond that to a loving engagement with Jesus. It's a much, much better motivator. These verses, we don't have time to unpack them thoroughly, but I love these verses, Romans 7. This is at the end of Romans 7, and if you don't, 
you probably don't know a lot about Romans. That's okay. It's a fascinating treatise. It's this theological treatise. It's one of the deepest and richest books in the New Testament. And in Romans 7, you have Paul. I love this, this juxtaposition. Romans 7, Paul's frustrated. And these the verses that we're about to read. Like, this is where, and some of you will remember him saying this. He says, I don't want to do the things that I should be doing. And the things that I am doing, that I want to do, I'm not supposed to be doing. Right? I've got it backwards both ways. I'm not passionate about the things I should be passionate about. Meanwhile, I'm passionate about the wrong things. Can anybody say amen on that? You know what's always fascinated me, me about this? And we, in, in Bible college, Dr. Delnay, he was about this tall. And he was our uh, professor for Romans. I took a whole class on Romans, and he was fantastic. He had been a missionary his entire career in Africa, and his health wouldn't let him keep doing that. So he comes back. He's this little kind of shriveled up guy. And he would come in and he would teach us Romans. And you just figure out pretty quickly, this guy's not very big, but he's a giant. Have you met people like that? Man, oh, man. And I can remember Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters, right? This is where you're soaring. Like half the plaques in the Christian bookstore have verses from Romans 8 in them. What shall separate us from the love of God? Think about Romans 8.1. Oh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Does your heart need to hear today that there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus? So here's the question. This is so big. This is what Dr. Delnay asked us, and I'll never forget it. He said, how do you get from Romans 7 to Romans 8? How did Paul write these two things right next to each other? Here's how you do it. Read it very quickly. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, that's what I wish, but I see in my members, my physical body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Doesn't that sound depressing? Listen, it's supposed to. He's saying that he's frustrated. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Boy, if he just ended the story right there, none of us would have rolled out of bed and come to church this morning, would we? Who signs up for this? This is horrible. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. No, 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 no. He didn't end it there. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, look at me, look at me. Do you know how do you get from Romans 7 to Romans 8? Worship. Thankfulness. How did he end it? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It always changes our hearts. It always changes our minds. When we stop being entitled and we take stock, we take inventory. Sometimes literally you say out loud. Sometimes literally you sit down and make a list of all the things God has done for you. Of all the blessings God's given to you. Man. If I, I was thinking about this this week. 
if I had a time machine, I, I would get it, it would be a DeLorean if I had one. Because <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. I would get in my DeLorean time machine and I would go back to July the 29th, 1994. That's when I was saved. And I would go find me. And I would say, the path forward is through love. It's not duty. It's love. Look at me. That's why you're sitting in this church. That's why we planted it. Because our purpose is to love Jesus and live for him every day. That's our mission. That's why we exist. To love Jesus and to live for him every day. And those two things are called out separately on purpose. Because if you come to us and say, hey, I want to grow as a disciple. I want to live for Jesus more. You know what we're going to say? Could we talk to you about loving him more first? Let's love him more first. And then let's live for him out of that love. Not out of duty. Not out of guilt. Not because you feel like you owe someone. How about if we did the right thing, listen, with joyful hearts? What if we were overjoyed with the idea of having the opportunity to obey God? Would you sign up for that? That's what Paul's offering. That's what he's talking about. Here it is. It's possible to have a saving faith and still miss God's heart for you. I really do believe that. It is possible to have an actual, genuine, saving faith, but still miss the point. Still miss God's heart for you. Because, listen, this will preach. So many of us are so worried about what God wants from us that we've jumped right over what he wants for us. And it'll just wash over you. (laughs) Maybe you'll get it on the way home. I don't know. It's not about what he wants from you. You always have to start with what he wants for you. What's his heart for you? Man, how much does he love you? Verse 9, we got to keep reading. He said, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, Philemon, I could command you to forgive Onesimus, and I would be right to do so. Hey, this is so big. If you've raised kids, did you know that contrary to what we have been told by some experts, it is okay to tell your kids to do something, and when they ask why, you answer, because I said so. Amen. (laughs) It is okay to say that, because I said so. But do you know long term, we got to find some better answers? Ultimately, especially as they get older and they learn more and they have more discernment, you want to begin to unpack why did we make that decision? Why do we do it that way, right? That's really what Paul's saying. I can tell you to forgive Onesimus because I said so. 
Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I want to encourage you. Listen, and what does for love's sake mean? Well, the way that Paul words this, the the grammar that he uses in the original letter, actually is kind of ambiguous on purpose. So wait, Paul, when you say for love's sake, is it your love for Philemon? Or is it Philemon's love for God? Or is it your love for God? Or is it your love for Onesimus? Paul says yes. Just love. Because God-honoring love that has God as its source is going to drive us in a certain direction. And here's the thing. As brothers and sisters in Christ... This is how we deal with each other. Our law is the law of love. And love is going to ask us to do some things that are open-ended and sometimes incalculable. Love is going to ask us to go further, right? You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Wasn't that the point of the story? It's not just about a requirement. It's about going far beyond that. Here we go. The second half, these two principles that are joined at the hip. The highest and best obedience always comes from, what does it say? Devotion. Devotion rather than duty. Sometimes you're going to make yourself. I get it. But man, if you find yourself doing that over and over and over and over... You need to come back to love. You need to recenter yourself on love. Wait a second, Tim. What kind of love are we talking about? Yes. God's love for you and your love for God and your love for your brother or sister in Christ and God's love for them. Just God's love in general and how that's going to motivate us. Galatians 5. Verses 13 to 15. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Here we go. Say it with me. But through love. By the way, the word serve there, it's a slave. Really? Yeah. Through love, we're going to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, sometimes I wonder why they don't make dishwashers bigger. Bigger. I don't know if you have this trouble at your house. I bet you do. We have it at our house, and there are only four of us that live there. But so often, we can run the dishwasher two times a day, three times a day, and there are still dirty dishes in the sink. Do you have this issue? Dishes and laundry, it just never ends. And I've always wondered why they don't make like a double-wide dishwasher. Because especially because of what I do and just the way that our marriage has always gone, we have people at the house a lot, like we'll cook and people will come and eat. And so if somebody comes over for dinner, and my wife's cooked and she's an amazing cook, right? We'll serve and they leave and we load the dishwasher, we can load the dishwasher as full as we can get it because I am an architect when it comes to loading a dishwasher. (laughs) I'm really good at it. And yet, I can load the dishwasher, start it, and there's an entire sink full of dirty dishes. Can I tell you something about my wife? One of her things that she hates the most in the world is to get up in the morning 
Come on. Dirty dishes. And sometimes you did like I did what I needed to do. I loaded the dishwasher, but look at this. You know what I tell her? Just leave it. You know why? Because almost every single morning, 99.5% of the time, I get up before her. Sometimes a couple hours before her, especially as I get older, I wake up earlier and earlier. And every morning when I wake up, I go in and start the coffee. And you know what I do? I look in the sink, see if there are any dirty dishes. And if there are dirty dishes, do you know what I do? Somebody does. Do you know what I do? The dishes. Do I love to do the dishes? Not particularly. But man, could I tell you how much I love my wife? Woo-wee! And it's just that it makes me happy to be able to do that for her. To know that she can get up and walk out and there's a clean kitchen. When I first started doing this, I wasn't very good at doing the dishes. Guess what? I got better. I learned how. Are there days when I make myself do the dishes? Sure. Is it just a habit? Yeah, sometimes. But when I enjoy it the most is when I'm doing dishes and I'm not focused on the dishes, but I'm focused on the one that I love. That's a silly example that you can pick up and drop right into the middle of your relationship with God. It's not about what we do or don't do. It was amazing to see so many of you came out here yesterday to set up chairs and set up this stage, and it was almost as cold yesterday as it is today, right? Did those people come here because they like to drive in the snow and ice? Were they bored? No. There has to be a higher and bigger and better reason. It's not about doing the dishes. It's about the one that I love. And if that's important to her, then it becomes important to me. What does it look like for me to please her? Now, she wishes I would ask that question in a lot of other ways. (laughs) I get it wrong a lot. Here you go. God wants us to do the right thing, but even more. He wants us to want to do the right thing. Some of you need to find a dry erase marker and write that on your mirror in your bathroom this week and read it every morning. God wants us to want to do the right thing, but even more, he want, God wants us to do the right thing. i got to say it right. But even more, he wants us to want to do the right thing. So I, Paul... An old man, now a prisoner. This is so big, right? A prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's laying it on thick. He is. I'm an old man and I'm a prisoner. Yes. He's trying to make him feel guilty. It's okay. I appeal to you for my child. By the way, it's very interesting. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. One of the very interesting things about the Greek language is that word order doesn't matter. Not the way that it does in English. 
So often what they'll do is rearrange because it's, it's actually pretty complex the way words are structured because it, it's, the word by itself you can understand what it means, not necessarily in the context because of the way that it's written or the form that it takes. So sometimes, and some of you have heard this before in sermons, they'll put really important words at the beginning of a verse and even though it's not that way in English, it was actually written that way originally. The important words get put up front. You know what's interesting about verse 10? The word Onesimus actually is at the very end of the verse. It's almost like Paul's laying this on as thick as he can and he waits till the very last minute to pull back the curtain and go, it's Onesimus. <laughs> Remember the guy you're ticked at because he owes you a bunch of money? Rightfully so, he owes you money like you could prove it in court and maybe he did, I don't know. And then he says this, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you you know what's fun about this? The word Onesimus, the name Onesimus, was actually a common name that they would give to slaves because it literally means useful. And they were almost speaking it over. I'm going to call you useful and I'm going to hope that you are. Hey, listen, based on the context that we've unpacked this morning, do you think Philemon thought of Onesimus as useful? No. No, I would call him useless. Like if we could stick a microphone in Philemon's face at that moment, that's probably what he would say. I, no, I think he's useless. I was hoping he would be useful, didn't pan out. So here comes Paul saying, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed Onesimus. He is indeed useful to you and to me. He's useful to you because he's coming back as a brother. He gets to be a part of the church that you love so much, the church that meets in your house. You've gained a brother in Christ. He's useful. But guess what? Look at me. You walking through the process of forgiving him properly, that's going to be useful for you as well. You might not have fun through all of it, but it's going to grow you in some ways that you need to be grown. So here's the thing. We learn to love. To love God and to love others. To love obedience. By always returning to the majestic gospel. The majestic gospel, which is, you and I are sinners. We're not worthy of anything. And the God of the universe, before you were born, looked down through time and eternity. And he saw the mess that your life was going to be and the mess that my life was going to be. And he, did, he chose in that moment that he was going to send his son to give his life in the most humiliating and excruciating way possible. In order that you and I could have the opportunity to be forgiven. That'll make you do the dishes. That'll make you do the things that we know we ought to be doing. We always return to the gospel. We always return to how much God loves us. And as we grow spiritually, the cross should loom bigger and bigger in our vision. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. We're going to finish with this. 
I love this. The love of Christ, what does it say? It controls us. The love of Christ controls us. It means that it restrains us. Listen, this is the imagery that's used. It puts pressure on us from all sides so that there's really only one way forward that's possible. I really only have one way forward. I can't go any other way because I'm being compressed. I'm being constrained. I'm being compelled by something. And it really drives us forward in a really specific way. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Isn't that your heart's cry as a disciple? I don't want to live for myself. Isn't that the message of Christianity? I'm not living for myself anymore. This is where it starts. This is the beauty of baptism, by the way. The old person's buried and a new person's raised to life. The old person's put to death and a new person's raised to life. One's died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When we can understand that, we can remember the power of the gospel, the love of Christ will compel us. It'll drive us forward. It will draw us forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power. That loving you well releases, unleashes in our lives to be obedient, to be delightfully obedient, to be joyfully obedient. So now for just a second with your eyes closed and your head bowed, I want you to take just a minute and ask God this week, to return you to the gospel. Ask him to bring you back to how much you love him. Ask him to remind you of how much he loves you. Maybe for you it's become old and stale. Ask him to make you see fresh and new how much he sacrificed for you. How much he loves you. God, our prayer is that you would use your love for us as a catalyst to light a fire in us, to make us want to be obedient, to make us desire to walk with you, to make it our heart's desire to please you and to love you, not because of duty and not because of guilt, but because your love for us is so, so great. Open our eyes to it in Jesus' name.